Well, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a massive movement that swept across this nation. It was controversial. It was polarizing. Some embraced it. Some scorned it, lamented. It divided families, divided groups of friends. But this movement wasn't political. It wasn't ideological. No, this powerful and controversial movement in the late 90s and early 2000s in this country was none other than boy bands. <laughs> boy bands like Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, these groups and LFO and about 30 other group names that were just a flash in the pan, uh, experienced a meteoric rise in popularity in this country. I'm sure in a size, uh, a group of people this size, many of you love them. Some of you love them, maybe. And some of you maybe scorn them as having no talent or whatever, as many people did. But, you know, several of these groups were actually brought together by the same person. A guy named Lou Perlman assembled several of these groups, including two of the most prominent, the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And he just had a knack of knowing what young people were going to be interested in and what would be popular. And so he assembled these groups, and they were incredibly popular. They were incredibly successful and lucrative. The only problem for the group members was that Lou Perlman structured the contracts in such a way that he made millions off of these groups, while the band members, or the group members themselves, made next to nothing. So, for example, in sync, Lou Perlman was making millions off of them, while each group member lived off of about $35 a day. And so you can imagine their excitement when Perlman invited the members of NSYNC to a restaurant where he promised to give them a check, their share of the lucrative earnings of NSYNC. And so they were excited. They thought, we're going to be millionaires overnight. This is amazing. And so they showed up, but their joy quickly faded as their eyes trained on the amount on the check that they were handed, about $10,000 each, which is a lot of money, but not compared to the millions that NSYNC was worth and that Perlman was making. And that's when we knew, one group member said, that there was something wrong. You know, contracts matter, right? Agreements matter. If you're in an agreement, whether that's a mortgage or a marriage, you want to know the details. Those details matter enormously. But what if I told you that you, if you're a Christian, you are in an agreement with the God of the universe? Don't you want to know the details? Don't you want to know the details of this agreement that you are in with the God of all creation? In fact, we're actually desperate for God to establish a relationship, an agreement with us. If he doesn't, we're hopeless. We can't know anything about God and we're hopeless in general because we would be separated from the God who created us. And yet, thankfully, God has established a relationship with us, an agreement, a covenant with us. And this covenant is incredible. And we're going to get to look at this glorious covenant this morning in Jeremiah 31. And so, the main point of this passage, and so the main point of this sermon is this. God has rescued us through a covenant of grace. God has rescued us through a covenant of grace. And just to give you an idea of where we're going, we're going to look at four points. First, we're going to look at the context of the new covenant. And then the need for the new covenant, then the newness of the new covenant, and then lastly, the grace of the new covenant. So the context, the need, the newness, 
the grace of the new covenant. So first, the context of the new covenant. In verse 31 in our passage, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, first, we have to, we have to answer this question, what is a covenant? And we have to define it, right? Otherwise, it, it, what does it really mean? There's an old comedy movie that our kids, um, this one part that our kids love quoting, and it's for the end of the movie, and there's this car chasing going on, and this one woman who's sort of frantic is grabbing this guy next to her who is a complete stranger, and she just keeps saying, save me, save me, save me. And finally, humorously, the guy just sort of responds like, yes, okay, who are you? <laughs> he just has no clue who this woman is. And in a similar way, I can say, well, God has entered into a covenant of grace with us, and you might be thinking, great, what is that? What, what is a covenant exactly? So we have to define it. So a covenant is a relationship that God establishes with his people, setting certain blessings and conditions, certain parameters, right? Oscar Palmer Robertson defined a covenant this way. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. Because God must initiate a covenant with us. We can't come to God and initiate a relationship, an agreement, a covenant with him. It must be sovereignly administered. It must be God initiating it with us. We don't just get to sit down with God and say, God, we need to have a chat, man to God. It doesn't, doesn't work like that. God must initiate with us. And thankfully, he has. He has initiated with us. He's revealed himself to us. God has spoken to us as Christians, and he's even established a relationship with us. It's often said by non-Christians that all religions lead to the same place. All religions are just different ways of getting to the same thing. And so no religion can really claim exclusive truth. And along that same line, an analogy is often used of religion is kind of like several blind men trying to describe an elephant, right? So one feels his uh, leg and says, it's a tree. And then the other feels its side and says, it's a wall. And so no religion can kind of claim an exclusive truth and state what is true, ultimately. But, you know, several apologists have pointed out some assumptions in that analogy. One, the person telling the analogy is actually claiming to see all things, right? The person saying the analogy is claiming that they can see the elephant. They can see that everyone else is blind. And so they are actually taking the position of God, of ultimate knowledge. And if you think about it, that's quite a confident, quite an arrogant statement to say, I see everything. These religions are just blind people just, just, you know, trying to describe this elephant. What is actually happening is this. That's actually a confident, arrogant statement. But it also assumes something else. It assumes that in that analogy, the elephant can't speak, right? It can't say, I'm an elephant. That's my feet. That's my side. Well, as Christians, we believe that God has spoken. If he hadn't, then we would be hopeless to know anything about him to really know anything true ultimately about ourselves or about this life or this world. But God has spoken. He's spoken through his word. He's spoken through his son, Jesus. And one of the ways he's spoken and revealed himself to us is by establishing covenants with us, establishing a relationship with us. And so God has made several covenants throughout the Bible. And I actually think it's helpful to just look briefly Take a brief survey of the covenants that God has made with us because that brings us up to speed in sort of the context of this. We can say God's made a new covenant, but without really knowing the old covenants, what does that mean? How does the new one differ 
from the old. And so really briefly, let's just look at the covenants that God has made with his people throughout the Old Testament. Well, first, God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve. Now, the language of covenant isn't there. It does not say God is establishing a covenant with Adam and Eve, but all the elements of a covenant are. Right? God establishes a relationship with Adam and Eve, and there are certain conditions. If Adam obeys by not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will live forever. If they disobey, they will die. And so God establishes this relationship. In other words, Adam and Eve enter into a covenant of works with Adam that's graciously established, but it's a covenant of works. And famously, Adam and Eve did not obey. They did not keep that covenant. They ate of the tree, and so sin entered the world. But next, God establishes a relationship or a covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. So in Genesis 9, after the flood, God promises Noah, and really it's a covenant with all creation. It's not just Noah. It's a covenant with all creation. He says, I will not destroy the earth again through a flood. And the part that humanity upholds is they will uphold the sanctity of life. They will preserve life and punish those who take life unjustly. And so it's, it's a covenant with all creation to uphold the sanctity of life. And the sign of that covenant was a rainbow. Moving on, then Genesis 12 and 15, God establishes a covenant with Abraham. And in this covenant, God promises Abraham that he will make his descendants as numerous as the stars. He will make him a great nation. He will bless him. And that through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God promises that to Abraham, and the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Well, moving on in Exodus 19 and 20, God then makes a covenant with Moses. And the covenant with Moses builds on the covenant with Abraham. The Israelites are still God's people. They are the nation through whom all the other nations, all the people of the world will be blessed. And yet now God is giving his people his law. He's basically saying, you're still my people. You are my treasure possession. But now I'm going to give you my law so that you will know even more in detail how how you're going to be distinct from the rest of the world, how you will obey me. And so God gives gives them his law. In Exodus 19, 3 through 6, he says, if you keep my covenant, If you obey my voice, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the covenant with Moses. And then God makes a covenant with David. And that's in 2 Samuel 7. And God's covenant with David continues to build on the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses. But in this covenant, God makes a promise that he will give David a son. And through that son, David's throne and his kingdom will be established forever. Now that covenant was partially fulfilled through Solomon, right? Who reigned right after David. And under Solomon's reign was probably the most prosperous time in Israel's history. But that covenant is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Jesus, who came in the line of David, established a heavenly kingdom and sits enthroned over it for all eternity. So that's the covenant with David, and then finally we come to Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. And I think knowing all the covenants is actually really important because every part of Scripture is written under one of those covenants. And so the covenants provide a really important context as we're reading Scripture to say, okay, what covenant, what epoch was this part of Scripture written under? And it helps us understand sort of the the different context and the things that were going on in that passage. And so the covenants help us sort of put our Bibles together and to understand how God has revealed himself and unfolded his incredible redemptive 
plan through history. And so those are the covenants, and that provides an important context, and that's helpful. But why do we need a new covenant? So those those are the covenants that, in many ways, they seem incredible. It's a gracious covenant. Why is there a new covenant needed? Why do we come to Jeremiah 31, and God is saying, I'm going to establish a new covenant. What is the need? And that brings us to our next point, the need for the new covenant. And right away, in this passage, we have to answer an important question, because if you look at verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So right away, we might think, well, wait a second, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, that's not us for the most part. So it's natural to ask the question, well, does this does this covenant, does this passage apply to us, majority Gentiles, or is it only for the Jews, the Israelites? And I would answer that question, yes. Yes, it's both and. One, the Jews and the Israelites were given a sort of priority, right? The Israelites were God's chosen people. And so God first establishes a new covenant with his people. He brings the good news of the new covenant to the Israelites. He wants to establish a relationship with them, to redeem them, to establish a new covenant with them. And so they're given priority. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. You also see it in Jesus' earthly ministry, right? In Matthew 15, Jesus says, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. So you see this kind of priority given to the Israelites in establishing a new covenant. Yet at the same time, Gentiles could be brought into the nation of Israel by trusting in God and receiving the sign of of circumcision. You also see Jesus interacting many times with Gentiles. He helped them. He healed them. And many times he affirmed their faith. And then after Jesus inaugurates the new covenant, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. The apostles then take the gospel, the good news of the new covenant, to all nations. And so we can rest assured this passage, this covenant, does apply to us. This is not just for the house of Judah, the house of Israel. It is for all true descendants of Abraham, those who place their trust in Christ. And that includes us. And so, yes... It is for us, but why is it needed? Why do we need a new covenant? Well, look at verse 31, because there's an important clue there in why this new covenant was needed. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then going to verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So clearly here, Moses is referring to the covenant with Moses. Or sorry, Jeremiah is referring to the covenant with Moses. So he says, I took them out of the land of Egypt, right? So after God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, he took them through the Red Sea on dry ground, and then he establishes the covenant with them in Exodus 19 and 20. He gives them his law on, on Mount Sinai through Moses. And this is, this is an incredible covenant. It's an incredible, uh, graciously established covenant. Here's the problem. That covenant was made with a mixed people spiritually. That covenant, the old covenant, the covenant with Moses, was made with a mixed people spiritually. And the result was disastrous. Right? They had the covenant of, they had the sign of circumcision, so infants were being brought into the covenant every day, many of whom never trusted in Christ or never trusted in, in God with all their hearts. Some of them did. You had people in the nation of Israel making this covenant that were just sort of along for the ride. They didn't truly love God and serve him with all their hearts. And so 
because this covenant is made with a mixed group of people spiritually, the result was disastrous. Overall, the story and history of Israel in the Old Testament is a very sad story. They served and worshipped false gods of the surrounding nations. They had some good kings. They had some bad kings. But overall, they went horribly astray. And so, God gave them over to their enemies. He disciplined them for their sin. And that's really the main theme of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet that basically was sent to the Israelites to say, hey, look, we've broken the covenant. We've, we've abandoned God for a long time now. And now we are being disciplined for our sin. We're being handed over to our enemies, to our sin. That's where you see the fall of Samaria in 722 BC to Assyria. You see the Babylon captivity, destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, of the southern kingdom of Judah. God is handing them over to their enemies because they have abandoned him. They've broken their covenant. Because this covenant was made with a mixed people, and so a new covenant was needed. A new covenant was needed to avoid rebellion from God. A new covenant was needed to avoid people going astray. A new covenant was needed with a spiritual people instead of just a nation. Because the old covenant didn't work, God needed to establish a new covenant. God's people didn't only need the law. They needed the law written on their hearts. They needed a covenant that could not be broken. They needed a covenant made with individuals, not a nation. A covenant that had everlasting spiritual blessings. And praise God that that is what he established with us. A spiritual covenant with everlasting spiritual blessings. And this covenant is new. And that leads us to our next point. The newness of the new covenant. So we needed a new covenant to avoid rebellion, to avoid going astray. And he gave us this covenant graciously. And this covenant is decisively new. So look at verse 33 of our passage. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So God now describes in detail what this covenant is. So I'm establishing a new covenant. This is what it is. This is what it's going. Now he, and now he describes it. And it is indeed new in several key ways. And so let's just look at some of those new aspects of this covenant versus the former covenants. Well, one, notice that unlike the old covenants, in this covenant there is no promise of a earthly kingdom or a promised land or even physical descendants. Do you notice that? This covenant and its promises are primarily spiritual. And this actually would have encouraged the Israelites greatly. In 586 BC, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and carried off the Israelites into exile. And you can imagine the Israelites being so discouraged, being carried off into exile, thinking, God has abandoned us. It's over. And yet they would have had Jeremiah's words ringing in their ear that I will establish a new covenant with you that cannot be broken. I will write my law on your hearts. You will be my people and I will be your God. These are spiritual blessings that, that can't be lost. Now God did restore uh, Israel back to Jerusalem after 70 years in exile. 
But this new covenant and its spiritual nature and the spiritual blessings would have appropriately lifted the gaze of the Israelites from earthly things to spiritual blessings. And the same is true for us. We are in this new covenant. This isn't, this isn't physical blessing that God wants to give us, contrary to many prosperity gospel preachers that you will hear. The blessings of the new covenant are spiritual. But here's the thing. Do we treasure the spiritual blessings of this covenant more than we treasure the things of this world? Do we treasure the spiritual blessings of this covenant more than the things that, more than we treasure the things of this world? Do we treat this world as if we were exiles awaiting our true spiritual home? Have you ever wanted something so bad or looked forward to something so much that it actually made you sick? In the book Pilgrim's Progress, the main character Christian who's on his pilgrimage to the celestial city talks about being sick with desire for the celestial city. He wanted it so bad. He longed for it so bad. It actually made him sick with desire. Are we sick with desire for God, for the celestial city? Is God and the riches that await us in heaven, are they a constellation prize? Now, I'm not saying that we would say this out loud, but in our hearts, are they second best? Is our spiritual blessings in this covenant and with God I mean, an afterthought, something we're thankful for, kind of like a trapezist is thankful for a safety net beneath them. I'm glad it's there, but don't really think about it on a regular basis. Or do we long for God? Are we sick with desire for him? Listen to the psalmist and their heart for God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O oh, Lord Almighty. My soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Or in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Listen to the thirsting the longing. Do we long for God like that? George Whitfield was a famous preacher in the 1700s to America, and he was especially known for his passion for Christ and his ability to, to speak and to stir the affections of his hearers. It was actually said jokingly that he could make a man weep just by pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good order. Well, he was good friends with Benjamin Franklin, and one time, Whitfield was preaching in Philadelphia, and Benjamin Franklin was running off to go hear him preach. And Franklin's friend said to him, what are you going to listen to that guy preach for? You don't believe that. And Franklin stopped on a dime and said, I know. But he does. Do we believe it? Is our love for Christ 
Is our longing for Him so zealous that it makes others jealous? Is our longing and passion and thirst for God cause others around us to say, wow, I just want to be with them. I want what they have. I want to live for something worth loving that much. Contrary to popular belief, it's the people who are most heavenly-minded that actually do the most earthly good. If you know and believe and grasp the riches that awaits you in heaven, it's way easier for you to part with riches in this world to love and help others, isn't it? The blessings of this new covenant are spiritual, not physical. That is different from the old covenants. And understanding that helps us set our minds on the right things. But this covenant is new in several other ways. And so let's just look at some of them. Starting in verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So God will write his law on the hearts of the members of the new covenant. Now this covenant is also anticipated in Ezekiel 36. And there he says he will remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and put his spirit within them. And so members of the new covenant, those who have trusted in Christ and believe God, have his law written on their hearts. And that's true. This is really just describing the process of regeneration. We're given spiritual life. His spirit is placed, is is put in our hearts. We don't just have the law. We have a longing to obey God and his word. He's placed his spirit in us. He's written his law on our hearts. But secondly, it says we will be God's people. In verse 33, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, the Israelites were called God's people, but they went terribly astray, as we already talked about. But God's new covenant people will truly be his people because, precisely because, his law is written on their hearts. This covenant cannot be broken, they cannot go astray because God has written their names on his heart from all eternity. Members of the new covenant who are regenerate, who have his spirit in them, truly are his people. And notice that in the new covenant, people don't have to share the gospel with those in the covenant. Because in verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Interesting. So members of the new covenant, in other words, are all believers. This is no longer a mixed people spiritually, unlike the old covenants. Now, believers need constant reminding of the gospel, right? That's what we're doing here. That's what we do every week. We remind each other of the gospel, the riches of this covenant of grace that we're in. With Christ, But there's no longer this first-time sort of evangelism within people of the covenant like there was in the old, of kids who were maybe circumcised and needed to still be taught how to love God, or others who were just along for the ride. Members of the new covenant are believers, and they don't need to be evangelized, though believers in the new covenant certainly need to take the gospel to all nations. And then in verse 34, it also says, And they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
from the least of them to the greatest, they will know the Lord. You know, there will be extraordinary, and there have been, extraordinary godly and gifted brothers and sisters. And then there will be the rest of us Christians who will probably not have our names written in any history books. But the amazing thing is both the uniquely gifted and the modestly gifted share the same joy. They know the Lord. They know the Lord. And that is their joy. It's the greatest joy that we could know in this life is to know God. So God says in his word, if anyone boasts, let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me. According to God, that is the only thing worth, worth boasting about. Not our accomplishments, not our accolades, not our giftedness, not any way that God has even used us to grow his kingdom. The thing that we should boast about is that we know God, period. That's humbling. It's also a joy. No matter who you are, from the greatest to the least in the kingdom, your joy is that you know the Lord. But lastly, notice the language throughout this passage. There's a lot of I will. You notice that? He says, I will make a new covenant. I will put my law in their hearts. I will be their God. Here is God promising to establish a covenant of grace with his children. And do you sense any uncertainty in his words at all? He's not saying, I really hope to. Man, I'd, I'd, I'd really like it if I could establish a covenant of grace. That's what I'm going to try to do. No. I will. I will establish a covenant of grace with my children. So if you are a Christian, you are in a covenant of grace with God. And he knew that that would be the case all the way back in the 6th century BC when the Holy Spirit penned these words to Jeremiah. But we can take it way further back than that because in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, he says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Those who are his children, he has known he will establish a covenant of grace with them, that he would be their God and they would be his people for all eternity. And there was never a question. There's a Dutch theologian named Gerhardus Voss who was having a conversation with a Christian, and this man was, was really having a hard time believing that God still loved him. He's meeting with Gerhardus Voss. He said, I just, my, my sin, I'm, I'm just, I'm really struggling to believe that, that God hasn't stopped loving me. And Gerhardus Voss made this amazing statement. He said, well, the best proof that God hasn't um, stopped loving you is to realize that God never began to love you. He has loved you from all eternity. He never started. God is eternal, and eternally he has had our name graven on his hands, written on his heart. Aren't you so glad as a Christian, that the most important thing about you, your spiritual blessings, your spiritual future, does not rest on our I hope, but on God's I will? Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he promised, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? 
Mm. We are in a covenant of grace. It's a promise from God, and He will not go back on His word. But we might thinking, we might be thinking, how can He love us like this? Right? We, we've sinned. How can God have perfect fellowship with those who have sinned like we have? And that leads us to our last point: the grace of the new covenant. You know, this last promise is so comforting, isn't it? The end of verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He remembers our sin no more. And that's comforting because our sins are so many and our sins are so egregious. I mean, just look at verse 32 and the heartbreak of Israel's unfaithfulness and ours. Verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. There is nothing dispassionate about God's relationship with his people. He took them by the hand. He made a covenant with them. He loved them. He was their husband, and they were his bride, and they broke their covenant. Many people think today, what's the big deal about sin? And we might as well ask, what's the big deal about adultery or betrayal, right? Anybody with an ounce of relational experience in this life knows the utter pain and horror of abandonment and unfaithfulness. And that is what the Israelites are guilty of, and that is what we are guilty of. That's why the psalmist cries out, for I know my sins and my transgression is always before me. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And just like Israel's unfaithfulness, our sin is a serious problem. We've abused God's love. We've offended His holiness. And it's serious. It is egregious. And yet, not only do we want to minimize the seriousness of sin, we often don't want to be held accountable to God for our sin at all. In fact, the opposite. We want to hold God accountable. That's actually what caused C.S. Lewis to write these words. Many people are convinced that whatever may be wrong with the world, it cannot be themselves. Someone else must be to blame for every evil. Hence, when the existence of God is discussed, they by no means think of him as their judge. On the contrary, they are his judges. If he puts up a reasonable defense, they will consider it and perhaps acquit him. They have no feelings of fear, guilt, or awe. They think from the very outset of God's duties to them, not their duties to him. Well, that's us. We want to minimize sin. We want to hold God accountable, even though we are the ones that have sinned so heinously against him. Who would establish a covenant with us? Who would love us? Who would forgive us? Take one million people and somehow place them 
in the shoes of God to make that decision, after having been sinned against as we have against God, I guarantee you one million out of one million people would not have responded with such grace and love as God has toward us. God is immeasurably gracious and loving. It is hard to fathom. And so in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, earlier in this chapter, we had this amazing verse where God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. God is amazingly gracious and loving. And doesn't that fulfill our greatest desire as humans? To be fully known and fully loved? Tim Keller in his book, Meaning of Marriage, says, to be loved but not known is nice, but it's superficial. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what it's like to be loved by God. And it's that love that we are all searching for. It's that love that alone can fulfill us and bear the weight of all of our soul's desires. That is the love that has transformed life after life after life. And that is the love that is offered freely to all who come to Christ. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anyone who comes to Christ experiences this amazing life-transforming love that is so undeserved and that is so gracious. And that's exactly the question we have before us. How can God love us in this way if we have sinned against him so seriously? He can't just sidestep sin or he wouldn't be just. He has to deal with sin. And so how has he done that? Well, there is one more covenant that we have not talked about. See, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit entered into a covenant of redemption to save us. Way back in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned, in Genesis 3.15, God pronounces the curse on the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her, her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's going on there? God is promising a Savior already. One who will act on our behalf, who will crush Satan and sin and death beneath his feet. But he will suffer. And then in Isaiah 53, God the Father announces what his son will do. He said he'll take the form of a servant. And this servant, by his righteousness and by his suffering, will make many to be accounted righteous. In John 6:38, Jesus says, For I have come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what, what is this? What's going on? Well, well, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit entered into a covenant of redemption, it's called. And there was terms and conditions. Jesus, in other words, entered into a covenant of works, just like Adam. And yet, unlike Adam, Jesus obeyed perfectly. And instead of receiving the blessing that he deserved, he actually received the curse that we deserved for our sin on the cross. And then he rose again. He ascended. He is given the name that is above every name. And so you see, 
This covenant of grace that we can enter into is actually built on Jesus. We can have a covenant of grace because Jesus entered into a covenant of works, the covenant of redemption. And that's why it's so appropriate that Jesus inaugurates the new covenant. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, he says, this cup poured out is the new covenant in my blood. See, Adam and Eve were in a covenant of works. They took and eat, they took and ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so death descended on all humanity. But Jesus came, and he is the better and new Adam. He entered into a covenant of works, but obeyed perfectly. And then he said, take and eat of my body and blood given for you. And so he brings life to all who trust in him. Jesus is the reason for the new covenant. The new covenant is built on Jesus. And that is why it's so appropriate. Our final hymn is so appropriate. Because as God's people together in a covenant of grace, there could be no more appropriate song than all glory be to Christ. It's impossible to know. It's impossible to know and grasp what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, on the cross, without loving him more and longing to see him glorified. And so the main application, friends, of this sermon and of this passage is simple. Enter into the new covenant. Enter into the new covenant. Come all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. This is a glorious covenant of grace that we enter in by trusting in Christ. And if you haven't, or if you have, if you're a Christian, then be reminded this morning of the incredible spiritual blessings that you have in Christ, only because of Jesus, because he accomplished the covenant of redemption on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for redeeming us. We thank you for this new covenant of grace. We thank you for this amazing promise these amazing spiritual blessings, and we pray that, Lord, you would stir up in us a longing for you. Give us a thirst for you. We pray that you would remind us, Lord Jesus, that you have been given the name that is above every name. We honor you, we praise you, and we pray, God, that you would help us to go forward today and this week being reminded of these incredible promises that you will and you have established a covenant with us, your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.